Last week, we started a series of talks where we started to talk about spiritual warfare and about this idea of how we are all in a battle, we are all in a war, and sometimes we misinterpret this war because we think that it's kind of only in the natural. We think these things that we're facing are just things that we're facing in the natural, but that there is more to the war that we're in, that so often there is more going on underneath the surface than we realize. And so we talked about the way that often the enemy will come after us and the tactics that he uses. And we talked about how he will question your identity. He will pressure you to perform. He'll exploit your weaknesses. And then he will offer you a shortcut. That was kind of the the kind of wrap up of last week of how the enemy so often comes after us. But this week, I really wanted to focus on the place that the battle often takes place. Because it doesn't matter if you know that there is a war going on. It doesn't matter if you know that there is a battle going on if you don't know where it is happening. And so I want to preach a message today called, It's All in Your Head. It's all in your head. I used to hate that phrase as a kid, it's all in your head. Because the phrase, it's all in your head, tends to insinuate that whatever it is you're worried about is not a real problem. That it doesn't actually matter, it's just all in in your head. And so often when people talk about something being all in your head, they say this, they say, don't worry, it's all in your head. But that is the problem is that what is in my head is worry. And so I can't not worry about what's in my head because what is in my head is worry. And I remember specifically when I was a kid, we probably all have some version of this story, but when I was a kid, I wasn't really a monsters in the closet kind of kid. I was never afraid that there were monsters in the closet. I had a little bit more of a realistic fear. I just always thought when I was a kid that there was someone in the house. I thought there was someone in the house. I would go to bed, I would be laying in bed, and I would just be convinced any noise that I heard, any shadow that I saw, I was convinced there is someone in this house. And so I would, oftentimes when I was going to sleep, I would call my parents and I would say, listen, I think there is someone in the house. And my parents would do what probably many of you have done with your kids or will one day do with your kids, where they explained, they would go through the closets, they would look under the bed, they would let me know, listen, there is nobody in the house. And often they would point out that in our particular case, my room was on the second floor and it would be very tough for someone to get in my room while I was sleeping. And they would often come in and they would say, listen, we've checked everywhere, there's no one in here, it's all in your head. But how many of you know when it comes to our minds, when it comes to our head, that so often the enemy doesn't have to put a monster in your closet if he can just put a thought in your head? If he can just put a thought in your head. Because so often we react to a thought in our head in the same way that we would react to the reality of that being true. And if you've never experienced this, which I'm sure most of us have, you've probably all had a situation where you had a difficult conversation or a difficult circumstance that you knew was coming. And when you would think about that conversation, when you would think about that circumstance, you would get that pit in your stomach. You would get those sweaty palms. You would get that feeling as though that scenario was actually already playing itself out you would have the feeling that what you were thinking about was happening. Because your mind is so powerful that when you are thinking about something that will happen, often your body reacts as though it is happening. And so often what we find is that the battle is in our mind. 
our kind of anchor verses for this series have been in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or you can look on the screen. But beginning in verse 10, it says this. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the spirit of faith, which you can exti- or the, I'm sorry, the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But I want to focus on take the helmet of salvation. Now, now more than ever, I see helmets everywhere. But when I was a kid, when we would go out and we would ride our bikes and our groups would get together, I just got to be honest, my group of friends, we never wore helmets. And we would build ramps out of just random rocks and planks that we found in the neighborhood. And we would be jumping off these ramps and trying to do different tricks. But we did not wear helmets. There was actually one kid in our friend group who wore a helmet. His name was Petey Petiti. And that is not a made-up name. His name was Petey Petiti. And Petey would come out, and he would be the only one. His mom made him wear a helmet and shoulder pads and knee pads. And let me tell you, he paid for it in our friend group. I'm not proud to say it, but he paid for it in our friend group. We would all make fun of Petey because he wore a helmet. Now, I see kids just walking down the street, and they've got their helmets on for safety. Like any kid on a bike, any kid anywhere, they've got their helmet on. And I'm in the game. My girls, they wear their helmets when they ride their bikes, and they're skateboards and all those things. But we see helmets everywhere. Kids riding bikes, sports teams wear helmets, soldiers wear helmets. We see helmets on construction sites. And here's what you notice about helmets. When you see a helmet, usually it does two things. It it shows identity and it gives protection. It shows identity and it gives protection. When I'm watching a football game and I see the different helmets on the field, I know who is on what team based on the helmet that they're wearing. In fact, you often can even know who is playing what position by certain markings on their helmet. It gives a sense of identity and a sense of protection. But when we talk about protection, we we often say that we wear a helmet to protect our head. But what we're really talking about is protecting our brain. We're talking about protecting what is inside our head. When I was uh, about 10 years ago, I was wakeboarding with some friends over in Winter Haven, and these two friends of mine happened to be professional wakeboarders. They were professional wakeboarders. One of them was sponsored by Red Bull. He was literally in the top three wakeboarders in the United States. That was his entire job, was that he was a wakeboarder. And then my other friend was a similarly talented guy. We were out there. They were doing these amazing tricks. They were getting pulled behind the boat. They were doing flips. They were doing just all of this crazy stuff. And then it was my turn to go wakeboarding. And it was my second time wakeboarding in my entire life. And so the boat starts up and is pulling me behind the boat and I get up, I'm actually able to stand up and I'm I'm holding the rope and I realized something was wrong about midway through. 
And after the fact, in hindsight, I know what happened. The boat driver thought that I was also a professional wakeboarder. We didn't know each other. I had never been out with them. And so these guys are constantly out on the lake wakeboarding. These guys are great. The, the one guy who's the like, top wakeboarder, he owns the boat. This other guy is the driver. He's a very skilled driver if you're a professional wakeboarder. Because you drive a boat differently when you're pulling someone who is a professional wakeboarder and somebody who has been on a wakeboard one other time. And so we're out there and I'm having a good time. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you're having fun and then it pretty quickly turns to terror. And we were out on the lake and we're going along and all of a sudden I just get this sense of like, this feels really, really fast. Like this feels really fast. And if you know anything about wakeboarding, if you're actually good at wakeboarding, if you're gonna pull off any tricks, you have to be going very fast in order to have the inertia you need to do the things that you have to do. And so we're going very, very fast. And I'm getting so concerned that I don't even feel comfortable taking my hand off of the rope to let him know that we need to go a little slower. And so he's pulling me at this super fast speed. And then he makes a really sharp turn. That is the time where a professional wakeboarder would do a trick. You would jump the wake and you would do some kind of flip or something like that. I think that's what he was expecting of me, but again, my second time on a wakeboard. So instead of doing a really cool trick, instead of jumping the wake, the front of my board caught the wake and it just flipped me right into the water face first. Everything went black and then everything went green because I was underwater. And I came up and I thought to myself, I think I might've just blacked out, but I felt fine. And so I remember my wife leaning over the side of the boat. I got up in the boat. I remember her asking me if I was all right. I remember saying yes. And then the next thing I remember is that I was sitting on the beach of these people's house and this girl had her hands on my knees. Turns out she was a nurse. She's staring at me really intently and she's asking me questions that I should know the answer to. And so she asked me if I knew what month it was. I confidently said that it was July, it was May. She asked me if I knew where I was. I looked back at the house. I recognized the house. I said, I think I know whose house this is, but I'm not sure how I got there. And then she asked me my name. And I don't know if you've ever had a brain injury or a concussion or something like that, but there is this terrible sense that is very hard to describe where you know you should know what they're asking you. You know you should have the answer and it's right there, but you just can't find it. And I just couldn't find it. I couldn't find my name. I couldn't remember my name. And that's what happens when our mind gets injured is often we forget who we are. And what we have to realize is the thing that happens in the natural when our brain gets injured is similar to what happens in the spiritual when our mind gets confused, is that we forget our identity. We forget who we are. And so Paul, in this moment, many scholars say at this moment when he wrote this, he was sitting in a prison. He was guarded by a Roman guard, and he's literally looking at this Roman guard soldier, and he's describing the fact that we are in this battle. And so he starts to compare different things to different parts of the armor. And for the helmet, he chooses the helmet of salvation. And the reason he chooses salvation as the helmet of salvation is this idea of identity and protection, that when you are saved, when you enter into the saving grace of salvation, that you have a new identity that needs protection. 
You have a new identity that needs protection. And because you have that identity and because it needs protection, you have to watch what happens to your mind. You have to pay attention to what happens to your mind. See, that salvation that we receive when we surrender our lives to God, it is meant to save our souls. It is meant to affect our eternity, but is not just meant to do those things. It is also meant to transform every part of our being, including our minds. And so when you receive salvation, your soul is saved, but you still have some work to do to make sure that that salvation makes its way to your mind and that you begin to think the thoughts that God has for you, that you begin to think the thoughts that God has for you. In Romans 12, verses 2, Paul again says this, He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, notice there that Paul does not say that your mind needs to be formed by the renewing of your mind. See, I think a lot of times we think of it as this neutral thing where our mind is like this lump of clay that we need to form by the renewing of our mind. But what Paul is saying is that our mind has actually already been formed by something. If you're living and you're breathing and you're taking in information and you're on social media and you're watching the news and you're listening to what people say, your mind is being formed. And so Paul is not saying your mind needs to be formed. Paul is saying your mind has been formed and now it needs to be transformed to the mind of Christ, that it now needs to be transformed to his mind. And notice that he says it's only after we renew our mind that we can know God's good pleasing and perfect will for our lives. See, so often what we do is we try to figure out the will of God for our lives. We, we get confused, we get, we get frustrated because we can't figure out the will of God for our lives. And so often what we're doing is we're trying to figure out the will of God without the mind of Christ. We're trying to figure out the will of God without having his mind. And I can tell you this, that you will never know the will of God if you are not thinking the thoughts of God. You will never know the will of God if you're not thinking the thoughts of God. You have to first get your mind right so that then you can know the will of God. And some of you in this place maybe even are trying to figure out the will of God. There's some confusion around the will of God in your life. And can I just tell you this morning that it starts in your mind. The battle starts with the thoughts that you are thinking. We have to understand that our minds are directing our lives, that our thoughts are directing our lives. It's in Proverbs 23, verse 7, where the writer says, As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Now, I actually remember when I was in college and I was studying the Bible in Bible school, and this verse actually really confused me. Because we don't think with our hearts. We think with our minds. And so it always confused me that it said, as a man thinks in his heart. Until I found out that the Hebrew word for heart, that we translate as heart, is actually translated, is actually defined by saying the seat of your consciousness or the root of your thoughts. When you look in the actual Hebrew word, that's what it means. And so this verse is literally saying that as you think thoughts, your most deepest thoughts about yourself, that is who you end up and become. 
What you are thinking about yourself is what you become. In other words, you are what you think. And we're living in a time where everyone is more sure than they've ever been about the feelings that they have. You don't have to ever wonder what anyone is feeling about anything. All you have to do is hop on social media for five minutes and you can see how your best friend and your crazy uncle and everybody in between, how they feel about whatever is going on in the world right now. Because we know how we feel and we let people know how we feel. The problem is that we're living at a time where we're more in tune with how we feel than what we think. We're more in tune with how we feel than what we think. The problem with that is that our feelings follow our thinking. Our feelings come after our thinking. See, so often we find ourselves depressed and anxious and fearful and uncertain, and we can find things that will help us feel better for a moment. We can find things that will help us feel better for a moment. But the truth is, if you want to deal with the root of those feelings, you have to deal with what's going on in your mind. You have to deal with those thoughts. And so in order to do that, in order to pay attention to what we are thinking, I think we have to understand the enemy's tactics when it comes to affecting our thinking. Because as we sort of talked about last week, there's almost a template with the way that the enemy comes after us so many times. And when you search the scriptures, you see that when the enemy tries to get into the mind of someone who is following Christ, he always does two things. He tries to get you isolated and tell you lies. Get you isolated and tell you lies. And this, this story goes back really to the beginning of time. It's how he's always worked if you look at Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, many of you are probably familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. And if you're not, essentially, God placed the first man and woman in the garden. And they had access to anything in this garden that they wanted, except he said, there is this one tree. And if you eat from this tree, it will bring death into your life. And the woman Eve finds herself alone one evening, and it says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. So what happened here was that the enemy got Eve isolated and then he told her a lie. He said, you will surely not die. Now, remember that what God had spoken to them was that if you eat of this fruit, you will bring death. And so the enemy comes and speaks the exact opposite of what they have heard from God. And so often that happens in our lives where God has spoken into our lives about our future, about our destiny, about the way he wants us to walk in. And we start to listen to these lies that are the exact opposite of what he once spoke to us. And can I just tell you that if God spoke to you or, or if you heard a promise in God's word and now you're beginning to hear the exact opposite of what you once heard, that is the opposition. 
That, that when someone comes along and is speaking the opposite of what God spoke to you, you need to realize that that is the enemy. And, and because what happens is the enemy comes, he speaks that lie, because if he can get you to believe that lie, you just might act on it. See, I want you to notice what happens, the progression that happens, is that there's this one verse that stands out that says this. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. Notice that it says, when she saw. So see, she first heard a lie, and that lie caused her to see differently than she did before. It caused her to see reality different than it truly was. She heard a lie, and it affected the way she saw reality. She saw things differently. And there's some of you in this place who maybe you're seeing some things different than you used to see them. You're seeing some things through a different lens because you've started to believe some lies in your own life. And I can tell you that when you start to view blessings as burdens in your life, often you're believing a lie from the enemy. Because there are some of you in this room who prayed for a wife or prayed for a husband that you're now considering leaving. You prayed for children that now you feel are only holding you back. You prayed for the job that you're in that you now despise every day when you go to it. Can I tell you, the, the odds are the situation is not different. You're seeing it different because you've begun to believe a lie. Because somewhere along the line in your relationship, you begin to listen to that voice that said, you know, maybe you would be better off without him or her. Maybe you would be better. Maybe you would have been more successful if you hadn't had those kids. Maybe there's a better situation out there for you and you start looking and you start experimenting and you start thinking and it all started with a thought. It's not different. You're viewing reality different because of the lies you're listening to. If you notice the pattern, Eve heard the lie, then she saw it differently, then she believed it, and then she acted on it. She heard it, she saw it, she believed it, and then she lived it. The author, John Mark Homer says, before you find yourself living a lie, you will always find yourself believing a lie. You will always find yourself believing a lie before you're actually living a lie. And so the question becomes, what do we do with these thoughts that come into our head? Because you are going to have thoughts that are negative thoughts. You are going to have thoughts that are contrary to what God has for you. That is going to happen. The goal is not to never think those thoughts. The goal is what you do with them when they come into your head. And it's this in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. It says, we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Let me tell you this. What you do not fight in your mind, you will eventually find in your life. When you don't fight it when it's just a thought, you will find it playing itself out in your life. See, people don't just wake up one morning and find themselves as unfaithful husbands or wives. People don't just wake up one morning and find themselves in financial ruin. All of those things begin with thoughts that were not taken captive. All of those things begin with thoughts that were not taken captive. We have to take every thought captive. It didn't begin with an action. It began with a thought. It began with that thought of, I'm not good enough. 
It began with that thought of, I don't belong here. I'm not qualified. I'm not worthy. I'm not capable. Let me tell you this. You cannot live a healthy spiritual life if you are thinking toxic thoughts. You cannot live a healthy life if you're thinking toxic thoughts. We have to learn to take care of our thought life. Romans 8, 5 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Notice that where their minds are set is followed by how they live. It's followed by how they live. See, so often we find ourselves hearing, seeing, believing, and then living a lie. But it all started with a thought. And so if, if the enemy comes and he tries to get us isolated and he tells us lies, then what do we do to take those thoughts captive? Because God has given us the tools that we need to do it, but what do we do? If it's isolation and lies that are the problem, then the solution is relationships and truth. Relationship and truth. See, this is much of what Jesus was talking about when he said, there will, there will be a day where people worship me in spirit and in truth. When he talks about that spirit and truth, he's really talking about the idea that when he's talking to this woman at the well, he's really saying, you know, right now there is this system that you have to fit into in order to be right with God, but there will be a day where this is through spirit, where there is a relationship. And so it begins with a relationship with Christ, but then, then it moves to a relationship to the community that God has set you in. You need to be living in a community of people that will remind you who you are, speak to who you are when you're not thinking about who you are. When you're off track, that they can push you back, that when you start to live outside of the life that God has called you to, that they will speak into your life and they say, listen, this is not you. I know who you are. You might be confused about it right now, but listen, we know who you are. We're going to help you get back on track. You need to be in community. You were created for community. It's community that reminds you what God said about you. I think it's important that we remember that the Bible never uses the term personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying it's not a useful term in some ways, but I am saying that the Bible never uses that term because it was never meant to be just a personal relationship with Jesus. The decision to follow Jesus is a personal one, but then the relationship with Jesus is meant to be set in community. It's meant to be lived out with brothers and sisters within the house of God, within the body of Christ that can help you stay in line, that can speak into your life. You were designed for community. You were not designed for isolation. And the second thing is knowing that truth, knowing truth. It's relationship and it's truth. A few years back, I was driving somewhere that I kind of knew the way that I was going, but you know, sometimes you wanna see if there's a faster route or maybe if there's traffic issues. And so I typed the address into my phone and I had it playing through the Bluetooth in my car. But I was also trying to listen to a podcast as I was driving. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it drives me absolutely crazy when the directions keep interrupting the podcast that I'm trying to listen to or the music that I'm trying to listen to. 
because for some reason, the volume of that GPS is like 10 times louder. For some reason, that voice always interrupts at the best part of the podcast or the best part of the song. And for some reason, she says the longest road names in history. Like if you use GPS, you find out that every road actually has like four names. Like sometimes when she says the name of the road, I'm like, I don't even know if that's right. I don't even think that's what it is. And so we're, I'm driving along and I'm listening to this podcast and then this, the voice keeps interrupting. And so finally, I just thought, you know, I know where I'm going. I'm gonna turn off the GPS. And I get really dialed into my podcast and I'm driving along and then I start to like, feel like I'm not recognizing things. So I type the address into my phone again and I realize I've driven 15 minutes past where I was supposed to go. Why? Because I silenced the voice that I needed to listen to in favor of the voice that I wanted to listen to. I silenced the voice that was actually giving me direction. I silenced the voice that was actually telling me where I needed to go. And I was listening to a voice that was not giving me that information. And so often that's what we do with our thoughts. We silence the voice that we should be listening to. We silence the voice of God that's giving direction, that's guiding us in favor of what we wanna listen to or in favor of the loudest voice. And can I tell you that what it means to take every thought captive is it means that we turn up the volume on the voice of truth in our lives, that we turn up the volume on the voice of truth. When, when, when my kids start to get out of control in our house, when my eight-year-old and my 11-year-old are fighting and they're hitting each other and they're calling each other names, there are moments where they're so out of control that I literally have to grab them by the shoulders and I have to look them in the eye and I have to say, we don't act this way in this house. And some of you need to take your thought life that's out of control, that's run rampant, and you need to grab those thoughts. You need to take those thoughts captive. You need to face them head on. And you need to say, we don't think this way in my mind. I don't think this way in my mind. This is not how I think because I have the mind of Christ. It's not how I think. See, this is Philippians 4 verses 8 says, finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. See, what Paul is saying is there are some things that you can think about in place of the things that you are thinking about. So he's saying, listen, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling anxiety, then there are some things that you can think about to overtake those thoughts. Because so often what happens is that we have this anxiety about how people feel about us. Have you ever had anxiety about thinking about what other people think about you? But here's the good news. You don't have to wonder how God feels about you. You don't have to wonder how the one person who created you, the one person whose opinion really matters, you don't have to wonder how he thought about, thinks about you because he's written it down, he's told you the truth, and you need to take thoughts captive and you need to replace it with that truth. You need to replace it with that truth. See, the path out is the same as the path in. You heard a lie, you saw reality differently, you believed the lie, and then you lived the lie. Some of you need to get some truth that is an exact opposition of the lie that you're listening to, and you need to write it out, and you need to literally speak it so that you can hear the truth, 
so that you can see reality different, so that you can believe the truth, and so that you can then live the truth. The way out is the same as the way in, but we have to we have to live it, we have to believe it, we have to write it, we have to say it. Listen, some of you have been listening to some lies that you need to actually say the truth over. You need to actually say the truth over. When you're fear, feeling fearful, you need to say to yourself, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. When you're feeling anxiety, you need to say, I am anxious for nothing because I have the peace of God. When you're feeling insecure, you need to say, I have confidence in Christ because I have competence that comes from Him. When you're feeling shame, you need to say, those who put their trust in Him will have no shame. Listen, you need to replace the lies with truth this morning. All across this room, will you stand with me?